Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Uh, Lord Jesus, what was just read for us, uh, though it happened thousands of years ago, it is uh, disconnected from us according to time, but not according to our needs, our wants, or our experiences. This is the word of the Lord. It's profitable for us today. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit do what it has long done, that it would use the gift of your word to enliven our hearts to faith and repentance. We pray this in your name. Amen. For many of us, from Christmas songs to holiday specials, the holiday season is marketed as a time of relational nearness and familial warmth. But underneath the veneer of parties and mixers lurks the reality of relational pain, divorce, death, distance separate many of us from what our holiday ideals may be. And for some, every mistletoe kiss witnessed the receipt of every family Christmas card is a dagger into a heart of isolation and discontent. For some of us, it's actually when we get together as families that we get to be together and it brings up feelings of bitterness, jealousy, envy. We wish for a better family, a more functional one, a closer one. Maybe your life is lived out in the Christmas vacation season with the classic line, and mom and dad can hardly wait for school to start again. But even at that, perhaps our laughter hides a pinch of guilt. Why is parenting so hard? Don't I love my kids? Shouldn't I want to be with them? Why are relationships so painful? I wonder if the reason why our culture, specifically my younger sister, is drawn towards Hallmark movies this season where everything is relationally clean and pure is because for many of us, we find ourselves closer to home alone. We feel forgotten isolated, and left to fend for ourselves. Our only relief is the dark laughter of seeing the head of our enemies set on fire or them careening down a flight of icy stairs. But did you know that the Bible is a story about relationships? It presents a history of humanity that makes sense of our highs and lows in our own relational life. It's the account of relationships threatened and lost, only to be redeemed and renewed again in the hope of what we have this Advent season, that is the birth of Jesus Christ. In other words, the story of scripture is that we all have relational problems, and those problems are only solved ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ. Few stories illustrate this better than the one which Paul just read for us today that we will look at. We're going to be looking broadly at 1 Samuel 1, or chapters 1 through 3. And it's in this story of Hannah, who we were just introduced to, and the birth of her firstborn son, Samuel, that we get a glimpse into the staggering significance of the birth of Jesus Christ and the effect it has on our own relational contentment or feelings of intimacy. And our main point this morning is simply going to be this. That is that Jesus brings relational renewal between God and man. Jesus brings relational renewal between God and man. And we're going to see this by examining two points in 1 Samuel. First, we're going to see the problem of relational barrenness. And then we're going to see the need for better priests. And that's going to leverage us to look forward and to long for our final point this morning, which is the peace of Jesus, our priest forever. So we have the problem of barrenness, the need for priests, and Jesus, our priest forever. And so what was just read for us by Paul in Samuel chapter 1 is the context and the setting that we need to understand most fully our first point today, which is this. It is the pain of, or the problem of relational barrenness. And we're introduced to Hannah 
And Hannah is one of the wives of a Jewish man named Elkanah. Now, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the, the history of the Bible and what happens in the Old Testament, but just because the Bible reports on polygamy does not mean it affirms it any more than a newscaster who reports on a bank robbery affirms the robbery itself. Unlike many other religious texts, the Bible never commends, approves, or recommends polygamy. And actually to read this and to think that the Bible presents such a life of sexual freedom as a beneficial life is to miss the pain, the dysfunction, and the interruption that comes when we reject God's ideals and we reject God's word in our life. And we know this because it's in this family, in verse 2, that strife begins to take root. Hannah is one of Elkanah's wives. Penina is the other. And Penina has children, many children. We see later on in verse 4 that she has sons and daughters. Hannah, on the other hand, has no children. And before the temple was built, which in the history of Israel is where we're at in 1 Samuel, Jewish families would travel annually to the Lord's sanctuary in a town called Shiloh. And there they would present sacrifices to God before his priests, Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And as part of this tradition in this specific family, Elkanah would give Hannah double portion to offer. Why? Well, we're told in the text that it's because he loved her, even though the Lord had closed her womb. And this gifting, this double portion, led Penina to respond in a sort of sinister way in verses 5 through 8. If you have your Bibles open, we could read that here. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival, that's Penina, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And so just as they would begin to go up to the sanctuary, Peninnah would begin this sort of provocation. Year after year, step after step, she would irritate Hannah. She would mock Hannah. She would poke Hannah regarding what? Barrenness. And don't we see here in Penina's heart the problem of relationships in our own lives? Yes, we can write beautiful love poems. We can wax eloquently about the warmth of family. We could come together and celebrate warm hugs and peace on earth. But don't we also know in our own hearts is the same potency to do exactly what Penina is doing here? to harm, to hate, to malign. You see, the Bible has a category for this that our world does not, and it's called sin. It's not how we were made, for God made us perfect. But it's what happens when sin entered in through Adam and Eve and a rejection of God that leads to us having a relational problem of hostility in our own hearts. And this hostility is understood with greater weight when we notice when her rival would begin the mocking. You see, it wasn't until the family packed up their camel and began to head off to Shiloh that this would increase and the hatred would ramp up. You see, in Jewish culture, there was not only the deep pain, the the normal pain that would happen from not being able to conceive a child, but there was also this sociological pain. You're not producing an offspring. 
The lineage of the family is at risk. But even more, on top of it all, the Jews perceived barrenness to be a sign of spiritual displeasure. Barrenness was thought of as a curse from God himself. And even though we see in this text, God controls Hannah's womb, the Bible never says that barrenness means innately that someone is cursed. In fact, to read the Bible's story is to see that it's often through barren women that God works his most miraculous of all feats. But Peninnah took that cultural legalism and leveraged it to her benefit. Hannah, you can't even make your own husband a father. What a failure. His father is watching you let the line die. And more than that, here we are approaching Yahweh. We're going to Shiloh to the Lord's sanctuary and he doesn't even care about you. You disappoint him, you cursed woman. He's displeased with you. Everywhere you go, it's a trail of shame. Everyone is disappointed in you, Hannah. You might get twice as much to offer as I do, but what has it gotten you? God doesn't care. He's not even listening. And maybe you felt yourself in a similar spot at times where you look out into the lives of others and what they have and what you lack leads you to this profound experience of condemnation and guilt. Does God not care about me? Or maybe as someone who's examining what there is in the world, you look at the brokenness in your life and you look at other people flourishing over things that you try so hard to get and they seemingly don't even want. And you come to the conclusion, well, there can't be a God. Because if there were a God, wouldn't he care about me? Wouldn't he fix my problems? Wouldn't he cause her mouth to be silenced? Wouldn't I be better than I am right now? But notice the emphasis of Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 1, verses 9 through 11. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head." So I want to hold up to you what is quite possibly the most mature, ever, most mature prayer ever prayed in scripture. So here is Hannah praying from a position of real pain. Right after this, what Paul read, she goes on to describe her prayer. In verse 16, it says she prayed out of great anxiety and vexation. Maybe you've related to those words before. Provoked by a rival on the outside, barren in the flesh on the inside, There seemed to be relational distance at every turn. Eli's displeased with her. Elkanah's frustrated with her. Penina is waging war against her and her own body is conflicted. And even though she prayed to God for a son, did you notice what she was willing to do? To give him up. To have him fulfill a Nazarite vow to serve in the temple before the Lord all the days of his life. How can that be so? Think of the felt needs in your own life. Think of what Instagram says your life is missing. Think of what all those individuals on your dating app say, it's not you, it's me. Think about 
what your spouse says contributes to the lack of intimacy in your life. Or what your boss says you need to achieve. Now imagine after all of that, finally gaining mastery, finally getting what it is that you have so desperately wanted only to then be willing to give it up, to let another enjoy it, to surrender your claim to it and to give it to the Lord. You see, if Hannah's primary need, if our primary need is in the restoration of relationships on a physical level, then what Hannah just prayed is the most foolish and reckless prayer any of us could pray. But what was central to her prayer? Did you notice it? Did you notice what she was praying for? She prayed for a son, but in what was her hope? To what end was the son to be born? You notice that hope in verse 11, that God would not forget her, that God himself, the covenant-keeping God of Scripture, would remember her. If she were to be given a son, she would give him up. Why? Because the joy of it all, of knowing she was not forgotten. God would have noticed her. She would know that God is not displeased with her. The burden of the perceived curse of barrenness would be removed. She would feel intimacy even when Elkanah was divided and even when Peninnah was devious. You see, how easy is it for us to pray for a child, to pray for a spouse, to pray for a promotion, to pray for physical relief. And then when we finally get that, to cling with white-knuckled reliance on the fragility of the flesh. But don't we know how quickly that can be ruined? And if it's not ruined by the outside, don't we often find that it was our own grip that crushed that which was so delicate? But Hannah's hope here was not in the flesh, but in the infinite. It was not in the gift, but in the giver. Hannah knew what each and every one of us must see, and that is behind our experience of barrenness in our relationships. It is our relationship to God which matters most. It is the root source of all of our experiences in this world. And this realization was so powerful to her that after she offers this prayer, verse 18 tells us she went her way, she ate, and her face was no longer sad. In going to God, she had hope, even against hope, that somehow God would remember her. That even though she was still barren, God was listening. That baby or no, God would hear her. And the story continues. God did hear her, and he did answer her specifically in verses 19 and 20. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. And then they went back to their house at Ramah and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. So after everything that she's been through, from the brutality of her rival to the frustration of her husband, the barrenness of her womb, even the disappointment of Eli who presumed her to be drunk, God remembered Hannah. And she bore a son. And faithful to her vow, if you were to continue to read chapter one, she takes Samuel and gives him to Eli and dedicates him to service in the house of the Lord. She gives him up because of the joy of being remembered. But as Hannah's relational barrenness was solved, the scene in the book of 1 Samuel shifts to a greater problem of barrenness. Barrenness that was already displayed to a degree at Shiloh 
when Eli, the one who is to care for the hearts of his people, condemns, misunderstands, and rebukes Hannah harshly while she's praying. You see, God's priests were were glorified middlemen, prescribed middlemen by the law. They were meant to be stewards between God and his people to steward what? Relationship. They were to mediate between a holy God and a sinful people. How can that be bridged but by someone who helps sinful people experience God's holiness? And it was through the sacrifices and prayers that God's people were to offer that they were to be uh, accepted and reminded by the priest that having done this, that God heard, that they are accepted, that they should have been the ones out of all the people to take Hannah's broken prayer and to give her hope that God had not forgotten that to submit herself to righteousness according to the law, that God hears. But Eli missed it. The priestly office was barren. We see this all the more when we're introduced to Eli's sons in detail in 1 Samuel 2, verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Worthless men. Not knowing the Lord. Priests not knowing the Lord. Look at what's said in 1 Samuel 3, verse 1. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days, and there was no frequent vision. What's the problem? Not only is the priesthood barren, but Israel is barren. The same people who were meant to bring Israel into a deeper relationship and confidence with the Lord were failing at their job. There was no intimacy with God. More than that, on account of Israel's barrenness, the Lord himself was withholding his word. The Lord wasn't near. He wasn't speaking. He seemed absent. And so for us as the readers of this, we see that God has answered Hannah's barrenness. But what of Israel's barrenness? He answered for this one woman seemingly neglected in her own family. But what of God's corporate people? You see, remember the context for the book of Samuel. We'll talk about this in our series in January. Is the book of Judges. These events pick up right where the book of Judges ends. And if you want to taste this holiday season of hopelessness and despair, why don't you just take a quick reading through the book of Judges, even the last four chapters. Here's what you'll encounter. Drunkenness, rapes, Sexual assaults, civil war, murder. Ho, ho, ho. But why? Well, the author of Judges tells us. First, the last verse in the, in the book. 21 verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king in the land and people did what was right according to themselves. So what does this have to do with Hannah and Israel? Because where the voice of God is rejected as a personal rule over his people, human hearts begin to rule. And the product of human hearts producing this rule is brokenness, pain, and relational strife. You see, it's because Israel wasn't ruled by the word of God that Elkanah, rejected God's principle for marriage in one man and one woman and took a second spouse. And what did that produce? Not flourishing, 
as the devil promised Adam and Eve, but pain and frustration wounding everyone involved. Even Elkanah himself is distraught. He's like, am I not worth more to you, Hannah? It has harmed him. You see, to be relationally isolated from God and ruled by the voice and desires of our own hearts is an absolutely terrible place to be. You see, we are smitten with relationships because it is part of our DNA. To be made in the image of God means we are meant to make sense of ourselves in relationship to another, in relationship to someone who is external from us. That is God himself. And to lose that external vantage point means that chaos ensues. We untether the reality of our humanity from the very thing that holds us together, from the very thing that makes us human. Did you know that this is actually what led Leonardo da Vinci to paint such ethereal masterpieces? He knew that if we lost some sort of sense of universal relationship, we would be nothing more than machines competing against one another for a limited set of resources, a limited set of morality, and a limited capacity for joy. And so what drove him to paint was not an obsession with beauty, but actually the fear of relational depravity. He attempted to paint into existence universal truths of beauty, some aspect of divinity, where man could reach out his finger like the famous pointing and touch that which would keep us from becoming abstract, chaotic. And history has shown that this turn that da Vinci tried to prevent has happened. That we have turned more and more inward and that to turn into our own heart, it hasn't led to flourishing, but it's led to pain. We celebrate human life and tolerance so long as it doesn't conflict with our own internal values. And if it conflicts with our own internal values because we have no external vantage point, we begin to use weapons. We silence, we shame, we slaughter those who are opposed to us. Our consciences daily are seared by the constant flow of media and what we are to laugh at and what we are to desire, so much so that we are led by what Paul calls in Ephesians, the prince of the power of the air. We have lost a relationship with God. And what sits on the throne when that happens is of no good. And while some of us may be aware to varying degrees of the weight of barrenness in our flesh, Samuel is actually holding up a bigger issue of barrenness. That's barrenness not of the womb, but barrenness of the word. When God's word is silent, relational disharmony always abounds. And this is what leads us to our second point this morning, the need for better priests the need for better priests. And here we see why we need something more than human hope. Why even the external objects that da Vinci's trying to paint cannot be mere beauty, it cannot be a vague idea of God, but it must be the God of scripture. And we're gonna do some Bible study this morning. We're preparing to read our Bible anew starting in January. We'll have a sermon series to help with that. And today I want to hopefully introduce you to a Bible study tool that will help you read God's word for all it's worth. And that simple tool we're gonna see today is contrast. Okay, say it with me, contrast. Look at we did Bible study, contrast. That's what separates the gray from the white. It makes things pop. Let's see if we could find what pops in scripture in the book of 1 Samuel. So read with me, 1 Samuel 2. 
verses 12 through 17. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people is that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servants would come with the meat that while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or cauldron or pot, and all the fork that brought up the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let him burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sins of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Now skip down to verse 21, just couple of verses later. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Are you starting to see it? Let's read a little bit more. Verses, we're going to continue on, verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow in both stature and favor with the Lord and also with man. Do you see it? Do you see the contrast? On one side, Hophni and Phinehas, Samuel's evil two sons, are being contrasted with the son of the neglected Hannah, Samuel. And here we see the priests of God, the ones who are meant to fix Hannah's problem, the ones who are instructed to take the offerings of the Lord, the gifts of the worshiping masses, and to turn to them and to say, The Lord has atoned. You are forgiven. Your sins have been covered. You are blessed by God. Instead, what are they saying? You must give me this. You must give me that, or you cannot offer it. They are preying upon the people at every step. They're spiritually abusing their role and sleeping with women who are coming to serve the Lord at the tent of his meeting. The law prescribed that as actually in the offerings given to be burned, that the priests would get their food. The priests were entitled, in fact, commanded to take a portion of that for themselves. But what are Hophni and Phinehas doing? They're beginning to take the best. And if they're not allowed to have the best, they send away the worshiper without ever having the affirmation of their atonement, without ever having their conscience relieved. And what do they do? They serve contempt against God's people. And what do we also see? They treat the offering of the Lord with contempt. There was nothing a priest should be more concerned about than caring for the people and the Lord with sensitive sincerity. And these priests abuse it. Why? What do we see back in verse 12? They did not know the Lord. What's the nature of their problem? Relational. Brothers and sisters, we cannot find relief from the conflict we have between us and other humans 
We cannot find hope between the barrenness between us and the Lord if we are constantly seeking those who do not know him. They are false priests, able to provide weak, superficial solutions. And this is true inside the church and outside of it. You see, while Hannah seemed to have the curse of the Lord, she alone understood that there was nothing that mattered more than intimacy with God. And in contrast to her, we have Hophni and Phinehas who had all the external markings of the Lord's blessing, but intimacy with the Lord was the furthest thing from their mind. And what did that produce? More harm, more disappointment, and more brokenness. But God acted. In chapter two, God appeared to Eli and he rebukes him for not removing his sons from their priestly office. It's prophesied that Eli's house will be cut off from the office of priest. But look at what God promises in 1 Samuel 2, verse 35. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out of my house before my anointed forever. A new priest would come. God will remember his people and he will restore relational access to him. And this is what makes the events of what's going to happen in Samuel chapter 3 so important for us today. Because what we are meant to see is in the spiritual ecosystem of 1 Samuel 1 and 2, no one could know the Lord. God wasn't speaking. The priests weren't mediating. There was no hope. But in chapter 3, God spoke. He re-entered the narrative. And look at what unfolded in chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Then verse 19, and Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all of Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared to him again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. What happened? The Lord remembered. The Lord that heard Hannah's prayer to enter into her barrenness was now entering into Israel's barrenness. How? Through the very same son. Through Samuel, the faithful priest. It was through Samuel that the word of the Lord, the presence of God, the voice of the Lord came to rule God's people once more. And slowly, through the restoration of that relationship, it began to heal the barrenness of the people. God's relationship was restored. There was a priest who didn't come to pray, didn't come to mock, didn't come to steal, but who came to uphold hope before God. But if you'll notice, this is page 275 of what is a very long book. In my Bible, this is not the end of the story. Samuel, as he nears death, has sons repeat the same errors as Eli's sons. Kings, in this book, a few chapters later, will surpass the office of prophet. 
And they will begin to supplant their ideals and their agendas over the Lord's. They will lead Israel into sin and slavery. What happened to the priest who would solve all of this tension by putting in place someone who did what was in his heart and in his mind? And this is where we examine our third point this morning. The peace of Jesus, our priest forever. The peace of Jesus, our priest forever. We've been working through the book of Luke. We'll resume it in February. And Luke is going out of his way to mirror 1 Samuel 1, chapters 1 through 3. He wants us to see that Jesus is the truer, better Samuel. You see, as this book begins with a barren woman, the book of Luke begins with a barren woman in Elizabeth who is promised a son who will proclaim the hope that God will visit his people, that the Lord would remember. In the next chapter, a virgin conceives. And just as Hannah, the barren woman, conceives, if you have your Bible open in 1 Samuel 2, she bursts forth into song. And Mary, when she conceives, bursts forth into song, which echoes almost word for word Hannah's song all those centuries earlier. And notice what Mary says. Notice the content of her song. What was Hannah's hope that God would remember her? We'll consider Mary's song in verse 46 of Luke chapter one. And Mary sang, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. The rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. What was Mary's hope? That the Lord would remember. And in Jesus, the Lord remembered his people. The parallels continue. Just as Hannah took her young boy, Samuel, and presented him to Eli, Mary takes Jesus to the temple and presents him to a priest named Simeon. Look at what is said in 1 Samuel 1, or 2, verse 21 of Samuel. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now look at Luke 2, verse 52. And Jesus increased in stature and in favor with God and with man. What's the point? Just as Samuel was the one who broke the barrenness of Israel in the days of Judges, Jesus is the one who breaks into the barrenness of humanity for all time. And unlike Samuel, who heard the word of God, Jesus was the word of God. John tells us the word of God became flesh and tabernacled among us. More than that, Jesus is the eternal high priest. We no longer have to worry about a weak and failing Eli not curbing his son. We don't have to worry of the days of Samuel 
coming to a close because his age catches up with him. Jesus will never die because he has died once for all on that cross. He has risen so that those who have relational pain daily might run to the priest who will always hear, who will never send away your offering. Our world is broken on every corner. But each pain of brokenness is a prick that reminds us of where we can run to find true healing. Like Hannah, we must run to the Lord. We must realize that apart from his gracious compassion, we will never find rest with him or with others. Look at what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is not like Hophni or Phinehas, without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. What does Jesus as our true and faithful high priest do? He gives you confidence to run to a better Shiloh, to approach a better priest, that we might in our time of need find mercy and grace abounding from Jesus. Right now, consider your own heart. Is your heart at peace with others? Perhaps, You are a people pleaser. You strive for peace with others, but it is peace within. Frustrated with your own heart, discontent with the lot of your own life. Or maybe despite your best efforts to live at peace with others and to watch the desires of your heart, you have a fear that like all those who approached in the days of Hophni and Phinehas, you might offer your best and they will send it away and say, try again. There's no relief here. Do better. And if that's you, if you're sober enough to assess the relational barrenness of your own heart at any level, I can tell you that here is the solution. Come here right now to Jesus, for he will not treat the appeal of faith with contempt. He will not take for himself, for he has given up himself, so that you might know right now that in Jesus, the faithful priest has not forgotten you that his father will accept all those who come with a broken and contrite spirit. And that's because he himself is the priest who is also the offering. He not only pronounces forgiveness from sin, but he has paid your debt for sin. He has subjected himself to your own relational hostility so that we might have the hope of restoration and life in the time of our need. So how do we apply this to our lives this morning? Well, first, we reject all counterfeit priests. When we seek to find peace, we must learn to identify and reject places of peace, which is not the Prince of Peace. We find all those things, we're like running to Hophni and Phinehas. We hope to find it when it is a counterfeit priest. A friend of mine texted me this week, or the other week, and he said this. It was a quote from an author. It said, pastors aren't meant to stand between you and God. Pastors exist to make sure nothing else does. Pastors aren't meant to stand between you and God. Pastors exist to make sure nothing else does. Do you realize that you might come and say hi to me, and it means nothing? (laughs) 
Do you realize that though I fulfill an office similar to the biblical priest, I am not the priest you need. None of your elders, none of your community group leaders, not your favorite author, not your favorite worship band. Why do we fail? Because none of us in and of ourselves can say in a transformative sense, you are accepted, you are loved, you are forgiven, you are healed, you have not been forgotten. But Jesus can, and only Jesus can. He is the only mediator we need. To be relationally restored to Jesus is to be restored to a deep sense of intimacy with God. Run to him right now. Assess your false places of hope and realize the supremacy of Jesus. He will not steal your meat or abuse his power. Take his yoke upon you and learn from him for he is gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Second, know that in Jesus you are remembered. Perhaps you hear this story of Hannah and you say, well, yeah, if God would give me a son, I would know he's remembered me. If God would provide for me a house in this market, then I would know God is faithful. If God would give me the spouse or the children I've always wanted, then I would know that he has moved towards me. But when you find yourself who sits Without a son, where do you look to know God has remembered? You look to this son. You look to Jesus Christ, who was born for you as a sign and promise that God has not forgotten. That God has entered into the pain of our relational barrenness And this Advent season not only looks back at the proof of the promise in Jesus, but it looks forward to that one day where all of the brokenness is finally renewed and redeemed. For some of us in this room, barrenness is no allegory, but a daily reality. Brokenness, guilt, condemnation, shattered families, complicated histories, addictions hang around our neck. And some of us might feel that at times we're lucky enough to forget it. Until, like Hannah, we run into someone on the outside who simply provokes the wound. But remember the words of Mary. In mercy, God has remembered. He who is mighty has done a great thing. God has not forgotten you. If you confess your sins, you are not forgotten. In fact, those who are covered by the blood of this priest cannot be any more forgotten than God the Father can forget his own son. The greatest relationship we need, the one that brings hope into every other sphere is this relationship with the Father through the Son. And this Advent season, we rejoice that God has made a way. A way for broken people to approach God with confidence, not worried about the provocation of those around us not anxiously wondering if the priest will accept our gift, not worried about the divided attention of our beloved. For in Jesus, we have relational intimacy with God through his work on the cross. And we have the promise of a world where all that is broken and all that is painful is swallowed up by all that is good. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you fit our hope with the gospel of Jesus Christ that you might give us the sobriety to know that in our hearts something is broken.
That is for the person who has never heard the message of the gospel today and for the person who has believed the gospel for the last five decades. Our hearts are broken and we lack a vantage point to make sense of it apart from you. But praise God who has spoken. Praise God who has sent his son to remind a people weary and worried that God has remembered. Amen.